The Bible reading this morning comes from Philippians chapter 3, and we're reading from verses 15 to 21. Philippians chapter 3, verses 15 to 21, which can be found on page 1180 of the Church Bible. All of us, then, who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For, as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizen is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Good morning, everyone, and what a glorious morning it is. It's so good uh, to be with you again. Last time I was here was the day of the announcement of your new vicar. Um, I don't know Nick Tucker myself personally, but as a result of that news, I've done some research uh, and listened to various sermons, read a bit, and it seems to me you are in for some very good times ahead. Um, I'm sure the Lord has an exciting new period for you. Um, If, like me, you're not very good at learning whole verses with many phrases, uh, may I encourage you to at least learn the opening phrase of our verse for the year. May the God of hope fill you with all joy. And uh, Old Christian saint has defined joy as the ecstasy of eternity in a soul that has made peace with God and is ready to do his will. And only a Christian can know and experience that kind of joy. Paul the Apostle has experienced it. And in Philippians... He is encouraging all believers to stay rejoicing. I hope you're enjoying this series of sermons in this delightful letter of Philippians. And that you've picked up over the weeks the ongoing emphasis of the theme of joy. And that's why this letter has become known as the letter of joy. As we saw last week, chapter 3 begins with a further exhortation to rejoice in the Lord. And it comes again at the end, uh, well, verse 4 of the next chapter, Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Do you really need to, Paul? Yes, I say it again. Rejoice. 
as Ben told us last week, that is the big idea of these verses in chapter 3. And indeed, I'd say it was one of the big ideas of the whole epistle. So let's turn to our passage today, chapter 3 and verses 15 to 21, and how they continue to show us how to keep rejoicing. Still on page 1180, it would help me enormously, it would help all of us if you had it open in front of you as we study it further. Let's, let's pray for God's help. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you never exhort us to action without showing us how. So please speak to us today through your word, by your spirit, that we may be obedient. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well now, whether to rejoice or not in any particular circumstances is a matter of choice. Happiness depends on circumstances and all of us experience tough circumstances from time to time and I'm very conscious that there will be many in seriously difficult situations this morning. And yet the encouragement of Scripture, the encouragement from Paul is to choose joy. And he makes three choices clear to us. And the first is this, immature or imitating, verses 15 to 17, which uh, begins... All of us then who are mature took, should take such a view of things. And verse 17, join together in following my example. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Now actually the Greek word here is even stronger than mimetai from which we get the word imitate. Indeed, the old revised standard version that some of us remember translates these words as join in imitating me. But of course, um, modern translators shy away from the idea of thinking that imitation is simply an immature thing. In fact, we all imitate those we look up to. I myself, in a different era, used to do an excellent imitation of Mick Jagger on the dance floor. I won't uh, attempt to do so again. And of course, it's sometimes alarming to see our children imitate our own behaviour. But how wonderful if they can learn to follow Jesus by our example. To learn to imitate our discipleship. 
we pray, don't we, for um, Ollie, that by the example of his parents, he grows up to copy them, to imitate their discipleship. As they together learn to read the Bible and pray. And that should be true for all of us. If we're, got, if we're parents, to invest in our children. But it's not just a matter of the next generation. Each of us with our friends, what are we modeling? What are we showing that they may imitate us? Of course, Christians likewise can imitate in, in the wrong way. Uh, so there's the wonderful story in the Welsh revival of 1904, which was a great move of God. And he raised up a number of anointed preachers, including one uh, young man with a huge mane of black hair who would wander up and down the platform in front of his congregations and uh, when he wanted to particularly make a point, would stop in silence and fling back his great mane of hair and run his hand through it. And uh, unfortunately, within a year or so, there were a whole load of other young preachers, including some who were as bold as I am, who nonetheless were stopping, flinging back their heads and then running their hands over their pate. Paul says, follow my example in the right way, my teaching and my way of life. And that chain of imitation flows throughout Scripture, particularly in Paul's teaching. I haven't got time to look at all the examples. It follows from Jesus himself, whom Paul is copying. And praise God for those who, through their lives and doctrine, have modelled faithful discipleship to us. If we want to be mature as Christians today, we need to stick to obeying Paul's teaching and not conforming to the worldview around us. It's immature to think differently, to think that we know better than the Apostle. I wonder in what area we're tempted to think differently to Paul this morning. The authority of the Bible, sexual ethics, spiritual gifts. Paul encourages those who think differently to seek God. And he's confident that if they do so, verse 15, God will make it clear to them. Don't underestimate the pressure to be immature. Instead, decide to imitate Paul and those today who live as he did, verse 17. Say that, verse 16, we may live up to what we have already attained. The fact is we reproduce what we are. So let's make sure 
we're providing the genuine article, the real thing, both by what we declare, what we believe, but also how we live. Christianity is caught more than taught. Life on life is how the gospel is passed on most effectively. Choose to be mature. Here's the second choice if we're to rejoice in the Lord always. Are we going to be self-centered or cross-centered? Verses 18 and the beginning of 19. For as I've often told you before, now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, it's all too easy, isn't it, to jump to the conclusion that Paul must be speaking about unbelievers here. They are obviously living as enemies of the cross of Christ, but actually... It looks like he's talking of some who profess Christianity and yet deny its power. Scholars have argued who he's actually thinking of, whether he's speaking of the Judaizers, people wanting to add to the gospel, or uh, the antinomians, those who wanted to do away with law and regulations altogether doesn't really matter. The shocking reality here is that Paul is speaking to the church. It seems that there were those who were known as Christians in the marketplaces of Philippi, who went to the Christian gatherings, but who in fact didn't live out their profession. Maybe at one stage the cross had been important, but now they felt they'd moved on. It was simply an event that had happened. They'd sold out to self. Their own property, their career, their family, their enjoyment of life, all good things had taken over. And Paul once again doesn't mince his words. The God is their stomach. If I want it, I'll have it, types of people. And their destiny is destruction, verse 19. Now, there are many like that around today. They go to church, maybe they're even known as Christians in their workplace. But in practice, self has taken over. They are living, says Paul, as enemies of the cross. And the Bible says their destiny is destruction. For example, there are lots of churchgoers who don't believe that. Uh, there are even leaders in the church who believe and teach that all will be saved. 
They're called universalists. But that view makes the cross unnecessary. And Paul was passionate about the cross of Christ. For him, it was the pivotal point of all history. Utterly central to the Christian faith. It was only because of Jesus choosing to sacrifice himself on the cross in the place that you and I deserved that salvation was possible. I still remember the day a long time ago when that truth finally dawned on me. After some time examining the evidence for the resurrection, I became convinced, much to my alarm, that Jesus was who he claimed to be and had risen from the dead. But that was an intellectual conviction. It didn't affect my lifestyle. It just made me slightly uncomfortable with certain aspects of it. It was only one day when the cross was explained to me that I saw the horror of my own self-centeredness and the wonder of Jesus dying for me. And it moved from head to heart. I understood I was forgiven. I, I didn't understand everything. You'll never understand everything about the cross. But I grasped something of the significance and it was that, by God's Spirit, that enabled me to entrust my life to him. I have tried ever since never to let go of the centrality of the cross of Christ. Salvation is proclaimed only as the cross is held up. We will never fully grasp the wonder of salvation until we see both the dreadful consequences of our rebellion and the, the wonder, the grace of the sacrifice of Jesus. My friends, don't let self back on the throne. Stay cross-centered. Maybe you're here this morning thinking yourself about the person and claims of Jesus, not sure whether to trust him or not. And that's a fair enough position to be in, as long as you don't just stay there, sitting on the fence too long. In your thinking, if this is you, may I suggest that you now particularly give some time to considering the cross of Christ. What was going on there? What, if anything, was achieved there? Why did Jesus indicate that the cross was his destiny? Why do the Gospels give so much time and space to the cross? Why does Paul boast, we preach Christ crucified? 
And maybe as you grapple with those questions, you too will begin to see just how vital the cross is. Immature or imitating, self-centered or cross-centered, and finally, earthly-minded or heaven-bound, verses 19, second part, to 21. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you eagerly awaiting your saviour this morning? Of course, if we are immature, if self is still central in our life, if we are earthly minded, our focus will be this life. And it's many attractions. We may acknowledge that the Bible teaches that Jesus is coming back someday, but it's a distant truth and a distant event, we hope. But again, Paul's view, the one who we're encouraged to imitate, the Bible's view is very different. After uh, the, the cross, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, after Pentecost and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the next event of cosmic significance is the return of Jesus. Now, the Philippians were very proud that they were Roman citizens. That was a privilege that had been granted to them after the conquest of the city by Philip. And over the years, they had developed Roman customs. They wore Roman clothes. They followed Roman ways in all sorts of things. Very few of them had ever been to Rome itself, but their citizenship was in Rome. And Paul deliberately draws a contrast here for the mature, cross-centered Christian. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's where we belong. That's where we're going. That's why we live the way that we do. Now, here in the West, the church can lose this emphasis. So I would suggest if you're the, an average Christian in the UK, even if you go to a good teaching church and you're asked what Jesus has done for you, you might reply, um, well, I look back to the cross and I know that Jesus died for me on Calvary. And therefore, amazingly, by his grace I am forgiven. And I have a relationship with the living God. I've been filled with the Holy Spirit. And I have peace with God and purpose in life. And those are all wonderful truths. I don't deny any of them. Of course, they all flow from the cross. Absolutely right. But I think if you ask one of the Christians in the churches that we prayed for, 
earlier in Afghanistan or Myanmar or China, they might answer slightly differently. As long as they've been to a good teaching fellowship, I'm sure they would point back when you ask them what Jesus had done for them and, and, and say, because of the cross, Jesus dying in my place at Calvary, I know by his grace I am forgiven and I have relationship with the living God, a personal relationship. I've been filled with the Holy Spirit. And I know, therefore, that Jesus is coming again to claim me. And that one day my lonely body, wrapped with pain and difficulty, will be transformed like his body. And I will be with him forever where there is no more pain or tears or suffering or death. And therefore... What does it matter by comparison that I'm persecuted, that I've lost my job, that I'm rejected and scorned by family and friends? Do you see the difference? Let's seek to follow Paul's example and try and recapture the amazing truth and centrality of Jesus coming back for us. Our citizenship too is in heaven. That's where we belong. That's where we're going. Let's live like that. I'm going to end by reading part of a, a personal letter. I wonder whether you can guess when this was written. And I quote, <clears throat> It's a dark world, an incredibly dark world. But I have discovered in the midst of it a quiet and holy people who have learned a great secret. They have found a joy which is a thousand times better than any of the pleasures of a sinful life. These people are Christians and I have become one of them. Could be contemporary, couldn't it? It was actually written in the third century by someone called Cyprian to his friend Donatus. Cyprian continued to followed Paul's example. He continued in the way of Christ. He became a bishop, Bishop of Carthage. Let's follow his example. Let's follow Jesus' example, Paul's example. Ever thankful for the cross of Christ and looking forward to our heavenly destination and so able to rejoice always. Going to ask the worship band to come forward now, and in a moment we'll respond in the only way that we can, surely, to the Word of God in prayer and worship. And um, let's stand together, and then I'm going to lead us in prayer.
Let's use this time to reflect on what God has said to us. Let's stand together, if you're able to. And let's pray for God to continue the good work that he has begun in us. This life I live is not my own, for my Redeemer paid the price. He took it to be his own. Lord, thank you. Thank you again for your amazing love, for your grace that rescued even me. Help me afresh this morning to respond in obedience and to rejoice in all that lies in store. Amen.